0: Sarah laughed. So chapter 18 verse 16. When the men got up to leave they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, what if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home.
1: I've never been to one of those great markets of the world. Do you know the ones I mean? Istanbul. I'd love to go to Istanbul and just be part of the hubbub of um, those markets where you can buy... Those kind of huge, colourful pyramids of spice. You can buy leather goods. You can buy clothing. Um, all sorts of stuff. Gold, precious gems and jewels. I'd love to go to Istanbul. Since that'd be a while off yet. Or I'd love to go to Marrakesh, Marrakesh, North Africa. What a place to be! Another a great bazaar, a great market of the world. I'd love to go and buy a camel just for the sake of saying I owned a camel, um, as long as they got two humps and not one. But I'm satisfied to the core of my being with the wonderful Epsom Market. You go there Sunday afternoon, you go there midweek, often on a Thursday, and you can have your attempt and your try to haggle. I would like a pound of fish, please, for 50p. See how far you go. I'd love to have a house plant. I'd love to have this or that. I'd love some fresh bread. Try it at Costa, see how you go. Haggling is something that Del Boy taught us works. And haggling looks to be the strange topic from this strange passage in the Bible of Genesis chapter 18. I mean, surely on first glance, it's about uh, Abraham bartering or haggling with Almighty God. That's what the passage looks like on the surface. In fact, when you scratch beneath the surface, what's going on is a prayer. Abraham is engaged with this deep prayer and exploration of God's character and as a, of a principle about righteousness and justice, about this place called Sodom that we, we've heard about, whether we know something about the Bible or whether we don't. Abraham is not haggling, he is praying, and to butcher the English language he's actually priesting. He's priesting, he's the first functional priest that we meet in the Bible. There is another priest already in Genesis chapter 14. He has the strange name of Melchizedek. He's the priest, king of God. But actually, although he had those titles, he didn't really do a great deal with those. So I'm gonna call Abraham the first priest. We're gonna look at him, the first priest. We're gonna look at the great high priest. I wonder who that could be. And we're gonna look at us as a kingdom of priests from this passage, okay? So first priest, great high priest, Kingdom of priests, that's where we're going this morning. In Genesis chapter 18, we see the first priest. In verses 1 to 15 that we looked at two weeks ago, we saw someone come and knock. Three visitors who were knocking on the flap, not the front door, they were knocking on the flap of Abraham and Sarah's tent. Abraham was uh, being pursued by Almighty God who came and... uh, in a theophany, a localised presence of his glory and majesty along with two other visitors. And they came and knocked on the tent because Abraham was pursuing Sarah's heart. That's verses 1 to 15 of chapter 18. But by the time we pick up the story again in verse 16, down to the end of the passage this morning, we see that the men, verse 16, the messengers of God, the angelic beings, are about to leave and go and do something. They begin to walk towards the cities of the plain where Sodom was and that's where Abraham's nephew Lot lived. And at this point it's very interesting because verse 17 as you look down with me please in Genesis chapter 18 we hear and see a recorded monologue from the very Godhead. We get a window, a a pulling back of the curtain and we hear what God is talking about Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Verse 20 tells us that they heard an outcry. See that, those words? The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that verse 21 that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me and if not, I will know. This word uh, outcry is a Hebrew word for injustice. There's awful injustice and cruelty and violence that's happening in the city of Sodom in the town of Sodom and God has heard that in his uh, metaphorical ear and he wants to see what is happening. Shall I go down and see how bad it is so that I can carefully judge what is happening? I'm against injustice and cruelty and oppression and so God hears and God is concerned about what is happening in the place of Sodom. I'm going to go down and see what's happening. I'm a God of mercy, but I'm also a God of justice. And if there is injustice happening in the place of Sodom, then because I'm a God of mercy, I will act justly. And those two words really get up our nose. I prefer to understand God as a God of mercy, we may say. I have problem with the Bible teaching that God is a God of justice. And we want to pit those two against each other. Has God got blue shorts on and he's the God of mercy? Or has he got red shorts on and he's the God of justice? He can't be a God who is both merciful and just. And yet the Bible says that's just who the God of the Bible is. I don't believe in a judging God, I believe in a merciful God. Well if you believe in a merciful God who hears the cry of oppressed people from Sodom and has nothing to do with them, then he's not a God who is merciful or just. A God who never judges is not a God who is merciful. A God who is merciful and is abundant and uh, uh, abounding in justice is the God of the Bible who hears the cry of the oppressed and has the loving power to carefully administer justice to those who are in need. And so this is very intriguing because God who hears their cry, verse 20, invites Abraham to come and plead on their behalf, not haggle, but to plead on their behalf. He invites him and there's a few places in the passage that we can see that. Abraham hears what God is saying, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and then God almost beckons him to plead on their behalf in a legal sort of way. We see that from verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That doesn't have to be recorded. God is inviting Abraham to come before him. We see that down in verse 22. Look at verse 22. The Lord sends away the two other messengers. And so it's just the two of them. So he's setting up this uh, scenario where Abraham can stand and plead and pray for an unrighteous people before a righteous God. It's also there in verse 21. Uh, It says, if not, the way it's written, the way it's constructed is that God is setting up a discussion and and almost beckoning before him, Abraham, to plead on their behalf. So over and over again, you've got this uh, scenario that's set up where God is saying, I'm going to judge carefully and wisely if there is injustice. And Abraham, I invite you, I beckon you to come and speak on their behalf before me. And so then we read in verse 23 these fantastic words. Then Abraham approached God. Now it's not as if Abraham was 10 metres away and then he uh, cautiously kind of shuffles forward so now he's 5 metres away. When it says Abraham verse 23 approach God it's a very, very significant word that we read in the book of Genesis chapter 44 verse 18. It's there again in Exodus 24 verse 14 and it's a legal word. It's a legal word where uh, you have an advocate speaking on behalf of someone else you have a a lawyer pleading on behalf of someone else it's as if uh, a lawyer is approaching the judge they're coming before the bench so it's not 10 metres to 5 this is Abraham coming before the judge of all the earth as a legal representative but that's not the only surprise look at how he prays Look at for whom he prays and look for how it's framed. Did you notice what he says in verse 24? I mean, remember Lot's there in Sodom. Remember that Lot is there, his nephew, and so Abraham could say, God, I know you're a God of justice. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Please, therefore, we you rescue Lot and his family and then nuke the rest of them because they're doing bad stuff there. <laughs> Now Abraham could say that. I know you're a God of justice, so please do your justice thing on all the people there, but please will you have mercy on my family and their loved ones. He doesn't say that. Look at what Abraham prays. He prays very selflessly. Verse 24, would you spare the place? Would you spare the whole place? I know there's violence and injustice and terrible things going on there. I know that you've heard the cry from the earth but please will you have mercy on the whole place, says Abraham. And then the haggling begins. Not in Epsom Market, but Abraham before the bench of the judge of all the earth and he's pleading on behalf of the people who don't deserve it, who've not earned it and who are not speaking or living as if they're giving his righteousness as second thought in the priorities of their life. Look at how he prays, it's, a, it's an exploration. He's come close, he's come before the bench of the judge of all the earth and then he's exploring and prodding God. Okay, you're a God who's just and you're a God who's rich in mercy. Let me explore that with you. It's so bold and so courageous. When I pray, perhaps when you pray if you're a Christian this morning, there might be uh, adoration. I want to thank you for who you are. There might be confession. I've been a real wretch this week. I've thought this, I've done that. There might be thanksgiving. Thank you for all the good gifts that you give me. And then there might be a whole list, out comes the linked computer paper, of all the things you want from God. Perhaps you treat him like a genie from a lamp. But here Abraham is not just praying, he's acting like a lawyer. He's acting like an advocate. And if you're a lawyer, if you like a legal documentary, Rumpel of the Bailey, or you know, kind of fictional character of old, or something like Boston Legal, or uh, anything like that, there always needs to be a foundation for the case. There needs to be something that you're arguing from. There needs to be a, a legal precedent. You can't just go clutching at straws or you'll lose even if you're trying to build an extension to your house and initially they say no, you say, well hang on, you let next door do it, so there's a precedent there, so can you please reconsider and so on. Abraham has the audacity, verse 24, to say, I want you to spare the whole place. Although they're unrighteous, although they don't deserve it, I want you to spare the whole place. What's the precedent? Verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth Do what is right. Now that's not a question. He's not saying, are you going to do it? Are you having a good day or are you having a bad hair day? He's saying you're a law-giving and a law-loving God. You're a righteous God. You're a just God. You're a merciful God. Therefore, will you not spare Sodom, the place? Will you not spare them? Spare means forgive. Will you not forgive the place who don't deserve it, who've not earned it? Will you not forgive the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous few? And then Abraham goes to work. It's an astounding question that he's asking. I'm not looking for you to save these people, to rescue them in spite of your righteousness in spite of your justice. I know that you're a righteous God. I know that you're a loving God. I know that you're a merciful God. But what I want to know is this God, will you rescue and save the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous few? The undeserving many, tens of thousands of them. But what about if there are a righteous few? Would you forgive them for the righteousness of a few? There's no reason or right to ask this question, but what's amazing is how God hears his response. as the haggling begins. What about there were 50, 45, 40, and so on, down to 10. There's a man called Gerhard von Rod, and uh, he writes on this passage, these few words: "So predominant is God's will to save over His will to punish." That God says, even if there are ten, I will forgive the whole city. So predominant is God's will to save over his will to punish. There's uh, this courage that comes by the Spirit of God into Abraham's heart. So he keeps going back to God and saying, This is your character. This is the promise that you've made. This is your your character that I just want to hold up a mirror and say, will you not, because of who you are, forgive the unrighteous because of the righteous? Won't you do that? Because if, if my only hope is my own record, I've got no hope. Does the righteous loving God love righteousness so much... That if there were a righteous few, 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, even one, will not the righteous one forgive the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous 10, 20, 30? And to Abraham's amazement, God keeps saying yes. If there's 50, I will. If there's 45, I will. If there's 30, 20, 10, I will. He keeps saying yes, yes. And just when you're expecting the passage to go down to one, Abraham quits the bargaining. And he goes home. And you're saying, hang on. Hang on, what about, why didn't you stop at ten? Why didn't you just keep going? Lord, would you say for one person, could one righteous person be enough to save the lot? And you kind of wonder, why didn't he go there? Was it because he knew that there wasn't one single righteous person in Sodom? Wasn't a truly righteous person there and so he kind of packed up the bargaining and went home? What was it? We're not told. You see, (laughs) as great a priest as Abraham was, he was not as great as the great high priest who the Bible says is Jesus. And that's where the passage naturally takes us. I mean, let's compare Abraham with all his pleading, with all his approaching, with all his understanding of God's character. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And then this haggling that comes because of that. This theological, this exploration that happens in Abraham's heart because of God's character. As great as Abraham was, he just points us to the great high priest that we need. It's so the second thing for us to think about, the great high priest. We know it's Jesus because the Bible tells us so. But let's compare Abraham to Jesus very quickly. I mean, Abraham prayed. Okay, He's not haggling, he's praying, he's pleading, he's, he's priesting. That's not really a word, but forgive me. He's priesting. Abraham is praying to God and he's praying for people who could have hurt him. Think about that. It's amazing that he's praying for the Canaanites who lived in Sodom and in Genesis 14 he's already fought them off with uh, 200 or so fighting men. And so here are people that he already has previous with who want his head and yet he's praying for them. Praying for people who could have hurt him, who wanted to hurt him in Genesis 14 for his enemies and yet Jesus, the great high priest, he prays not just for those who could have hurt him but those who were killing him when Jesus was on the cross he prayed father forgive them they don't realize what they're doing to me think of Abraham Abraham risked his life Abraham risked his life by going back and back to the presence of almighty God whose glory he's already seen in a smoking fire pot I mean think of Hagar remember Hagar Uh, Genesis 16, she was amazed, you are the God who sees me. Hagar was amazed that uh, she survived the uh, intimate setting with Almighty God and yet Abraham is going and basically praying or arguing or exploring again and again before Almighty God. It's terrifying. He risks his life praying for the Canaanites, he's risking his life even more so going into the presence of God. He's praying and praying. But Jesus Christ gave his life for the people he was praying for. He prayed for them. And here's the main one, comparing Abraham to Jesus. Abraham, he was the one in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16 and following. He was the the first one in the Bible who discovered this principle. Because of who you are, God, would you forgive the unrighteous many for the righteous few. And yet Jesus was the one who enacted that principle. That's exactly what Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to do. The night he was betrayed, the night before he was betrayed, for the, or, or went to the cross for the sins of the world. In John chapter 17, we have recorded what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, Father, I want you to love them even as you love me and I want you to treat them as if they were me. Father, will you, because of what I'm about to do as the great high priest, the eternal high priest, will you treat the unrighteous millions as if they were me because I am the only righteous one? Friends, this is the gospel, this is the gospel in a wonderful portrayal in the Old Testament. When you through faith believe in the person of Jesus Christ alone, you enter a solidarity with him. You are united with him by faith. You are in Christ. All your unrighteousness is taken by him. All of his righteousness is attributed to you by grace. That's what Abraham wants to know in the Old Testament. What if there was 50 righteous there? What if there was 20, 10? But what if there was one? When you believe in Jesus Christ and what he did and that he died for you, for your sake in your place, that means at the same time you are utterly flawed, utterly flawed. But you are in Jesus Christ and that means that you are utterly righteous before him by his sheer grace. Not just that your past is wiped out, All of your righteousness, all of your unrighteousness is wiped out and all of his righteousness is given to you. And therefore Hebrews chapter 7 says, Therefore Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's our great high priest because he's our eternal high priest. Death cannot defeat him. Abraham pleads and says will you forgive the unrighteous many for the righteous few and God says yes I will even for one whose name is Jesus but let's bring this down to ground because the Bible says thirdly finally we're also a kingdom of priests there are a group of people in Revelation and 1 Peter chapter 2 where, and other places as well where the Bible describes the church, Christians as priests. Now we've used this word priesting which I made up and priests th- throughout the message so far and I've not said what it is. So let me tell you what it is, a priest is a bridge. I'm very odd in many ways. Because I have a background in civil engineering, there have been many times when we're in the car and we're travelling down a road and I say that is a really attractive bridge and yet my wife still loves me, we have a deep (laughs) love, 22 years old almost. Now what is a priest? A priest is a bridge. A priest is a bridge between Almighty God and people. A priest is someone who has a deep intimate relationship with the God of the universe and yet has deep sympathy and empathy and understands the weakness of the human heart and the cares and concerns of the people. A priest is a bridge between Almighty God and humanity. And so you have priests in the Bible like Moses, you have priests in the Bible like Abraham and every priest points to Jesus. It's Revelation 1 verse 6, it says, God has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. But you're a royal priesthood, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. So that priestness that God calls all of us to do is about access and intimacy, about knowing God intimately and praying for people, but also knowing the deep concerns of the human heart and identifying with our fellow fellow, uh, people in our community. That's really what it means. But if you just say, oh, I just want to follow what Abraham did. I just want to pray more earnestly. I just want to pray a little harder. I just want to know the right thing to do. You'll just be crushed because my heart just is not like Abraham's. And it's certainly not like Jesus. But to be a priest is to identify deeply with God, to plead for people, but also to identify deeply with those in our community and those in our lives. So let's be very practical. If that's what a priest does, there are lots of uh, Christians here this morning, online and in person as well. But our prayer life is not really about intimacy. Our prayer life is like a prayer in a bottle and then we just throw the bottle and we see what we get. We Very rarely do we know God intimately. It's like a genie in a lap. You, you don't have very much of a sense of the presence of God in your life. You, you don't go after God in prayer like uh, Abraham does, building off God's character. I mean, look at the humility that Abraham has as he goes back and back to God. But look at the boldness that Abraham has as he goes back and back to God. I mean, I say very often, I understand the concept of God as a a great high priest in the person of his son. But do I rejoice in it? Do I enjoy it? Do I rest in it? Do I practise it? Or do I just understand the concept that Jesus is my great high priest. That's what it means practically. Christian friend are you a person who prays intimately, deeply, do you have an understanding of God as Jesus Christ is your great high priest but, but does it just stop there, you understand it but you don't enjoy it, you don't meditate upon it, you don't rejoice in it and you certainly don't apply it. Don't just try and be Abraham-like, it will crush you. You need to rejoice in the one to whom Abraham points to and you need to meditate on the person of Jesus. You need to enjoy the person of Jesus and you need to practice the reality that Jesus is our great high priest and that means therefore we can go to him and pour out our heart before him. We can enjoy and know intimacy with him any time of the day or night and we can meditate on the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. What about people? What about if you really struggle? I mean, I just hate rich people. They're so superior to me. And often it can come from jealousy. I just hate poor people. They're so needy. And that comes from a position of pride. How dare we say either of those things? I just hate middle class people. There's so many of them in Epsom and Yule anyway. (laughs) And basically you hate everybody. No, you mustn't behave like that. If you are to be a priestly person, You need to have a deep rich relationship with God which you have because of Jesus and meditate and understand that. But also you need to have a deep sympathy and empathy for other people. And that becomes reared in your heart again to the degree that you understand Jesus as your great high priest. If he's not, if he's just your example, if he's just a helper for your life, if he's just the genie in the lamp or the one you throw the prayer bottle to, If you don't understand that you're deeply flawed and yet completely righteous in him, you'll just be, you'll never be able to be a priest that God has called you to be. True intimacy, you see, comes from the gospel. True intimacy comes alone through Jesus Christ who died for you and for me. True intimacy comes because Jesus was risen and rose on the third day and now pleads for you and for me on our behalf. And think that Abraham, to go into this bargaining, to go into this prayer, he must have had an understanding of the gospel in embryonic form. He must have seen Jesus, as it were, from afar. And think how much of information we have. We have the whole gospel. We have so much more information. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. And so we can reflect on what it means to have Jesus as our great high priest. We can enjoy it and rejoice and meditate upon it. We can deeply imitate Abraham to the degree that we understand the gospel that he understood in embryonic form. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. Bold, I approach the bench and I claim the crown that was won through Christ. That gives you humility, doesn't it? Christ has won it for me, it gives you boldness because Christ is living in me. It gives you joy. And so we can pray for the community around us and for those in need of Christ. It gives us sympathy for rich and poor and middle class alike, for young and old, for people that are the same as us, people that are very different from us. And I wonder why Abraham stopped at 10. Why did he stop at 10? Was it because 10 is a community size? Was it Because you needed to have 10 to have a synagogue and he had a, a Jewish understanding of community. I don't know. But Abraham prayed for those in need. Please will you save the whole city. They don't deserve it, but please will you do it. Because you're a God of mercy and a God of justice. Abraham probably knew that priests work best in communities. And God redeems broken towns and cities through people and churches who pray. Why don't we be a community like that? We've got a few more than 10. Let's pray together.